halfway point, at least by sundown tonight, certainly goes by in a hurry. Uh, regarding the schedule, particularly for those on the phone lines, uh, we're going up to Zion tomorrow for a service and a time. So there'll be no phone broadcast tomorrow. I think you know that, but I want to remind and be sure you understand the schedule. So no phone broadcast tomorrow. We're going to one of those few places left in the United States where you have a reprieve from electronics, (laughs) at least in terms of cell phones. So we'll enjoy Zion, and I hope you can enjoy a day during the feast as well, wherever you might be. For those of you going to Zion, we're going to meet at the little pavilion at the park above the library on Lion Boulevard, which uh, is a street that takes off to the left as you go up into Springdale, or actually almost through Springdale, uh, on the left-hand side that goes up to Tanner Pavilion. And uh, that's where we'll be. Now tonight, uh, as per the schedule, we have a barbecue dinner slated. Uh, it asks that we please bring a side dish or dessert uh, to complement the, the meat which is being provided. And it says we'll have food, games, and music. I think there's some music being planned to be played on instruments for us. Says we're going to start cooking at 4:30 and planning to start uh, eating and so on at 5:30. So a little earlier tonight than our informal things have been so far, but uh, cooking at 4:30 and starting things at 5:30. Well, we had a solemn yet joyful occasion yesterday afternoon. Uh, we went up to the top of Mount Hermon, known around here as Mount Cedar Mountain, uh, overlooking Zion. And uh, there's a lake up there they call Navajo Lake. I don't know what it was called in ancient times, but out of the end of Cedar Mountain and out of that volcanic-bottomed lake come several streams of water that form uh, creeks or rivers. Uh, and may very well have been the headwaters of the four rivers of Eden. Very, very rare. It is a very rare occurrence to have one mountain provide streams out of one place going that many different directions. Uh, I don't know of any other place like that. Maybe there is one somewhere. But at any rate, uh, Anthony Amaral was baptized there in the name of Emmanuel. And since Gloria had not had that opportunity, having been baptized into the the Trinity, (laughs) as we used to do unwittingly and unknowingly, she was uh, re-baptized just into the name of Emmanuel. So it was a very uh, joyous time. They say the angels in heaven rejoice over such a thing. And I didn't rejoice until I got out of that ice water. (laughs) <laughs> I began to rejoice then. <laughs> that uh, that's at nine thousand feet. It's cold up there at night, and and the 
it was fairly cool even yesterday afternoon, and the wind was blowing a bit too. Well, not really windy, but it was it was blowing enough you noticed it. And uh, stepping that water, you knew it too. I thought we were gonna lose poor Anthony permanently there for a moment. It's uh, it takes your breath away, kind of when you walk out there, and then it's total <laughs> total shock when somebody throws you under the water violently. And uh, he came up out of there spluttering and trying to breathe and couldn't catch his breath and stumbling around on the rocks. And I thought, well, we may may have to drag him out of here, but he <laughs> he overcame the shock. <laughs> I think Glory was in almost as bad a shape. And uh, I wasn't a whole lot better. But they wanted to do it there. I said, you know, there are heated swimming pools at motels. And we even have a horse trough here that's connected so we can fill it with uh, warm water. But they liked the symbolism of going up there on Mount Hermon and uh, overlooking Zion. And uh, it was worth it. It was worth it. So anyway, that's that story. <clears throat> now let's get on with another story. Uh, we talked about Enoch yes, yesterday, one of the fathers that we're to look back to as an example of faith and righteousness. So the next one that Paul mentions in Hebrews 11 is Noah. Uh, so let's let's examine the story of Noah today. God gives quite a little space to uh, telling us the story of what happened then. It is an epic story, one of the greatest uh, times of trouble for some, and one of the greatest deliverances in the history of mankind. So this was a very, very important juncture in the history of man. Man had lived for approximately a thousand years on the earth and it become so wicked that God shook his head and said I wish I'd have never done this project we'll see that here in a moment so after Enoch here in chapter 5 of Genesis <clears throat> we come down uh, to verse 28 Lamech lived 182 years and begat a son and he called his name Noah we think it was strange that Abraham and Sarah had a son at the age of about a hundred back here prior to the flood. They were having kids when they were five, six, seven, eight hundred years old. <laughs> so times changed. Anyway, he called his name Noah, saying, This same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the eternal has cursed. Now, I don't know how much Lamech may have known about God, but I'm sure that there was a certain knowledge of Adam and Eve that had been passed down. Adam and Eve also lived over 900 years, so uh, and they didn't get senile at 76 like we do. So uh, people pass these stories around and... and uh, History was alive. To you and I, something that happened seven or eight hundred years ago, we have to thumb through some kind of a history book uh, to try to piece together what might have happened that long ago. 
uh, all you had to do then was ask Uncle John, because he was there, <laughs> you know, not too long after Adam and Eve, and they began to multiply on the earth. And there may have been billions of people on earth by the time Noah was born. Uh, that's not at all out of the question. Have you ever heard that story? I'm sure you have. Where would you rather have a penny doubled for 30 days or a million dollars? And a penny doubled every day, and you you think two, four, eight, twelve, you know, sixteen, and you think I think I'll take the million bucks. But uh, doubled thirty times, and uh, the numbers are off the chart by the time you get to thirty. Those last three, four, five days, uh, it goes up exponentially. And, you know, the earth's population was somewhat devastated uh, during the Middle Ages through famine and disease and so on. And uh, I think when I was a kid, the population of the, earth, of the United States was only approaching, uh, wasn't even 200 million, I don't think. And now it's at least 330 million. Uh, so it's getting to the point that it, that exponential growth is occurring. And then if you start inviting immigrants in, too, (laughs) let's not all go to all that. But the point is, in a thousand years, look what can happen. Uh, How far had these people advanced, for instance, technologically? Uh, We were still horse and buggy, and no phones or nothing like that, uh, about the turn of the century, the uh, the 20th century. 1903 was the first airplane flight of any kind, and it was short. Uh, So there was not much technology at all. They were still using sailing ships up until just before that, horses and buggies and nothing else. And in the space of, what, 50 years, 60 years at the most, we had spaceships from the first flight. And the technological development that has occurred in the last 10, 20, 30 years is just amazing how fast it goes once it gets going. <clears throat> Even when I was a student in college, they had a whole city block of buildings devoted just to the computers to run uh, the church's business. Took a whole block of computers. And those computers today could not do what a laptop can do, maybe even what your phone can do. Uh, It's incredible, the miniaturization and the technological advance that has occurred uh, just in that short period of time. And those people back there were, A, smarter than we are, not having gone through so much degeneration, and B, they didn't get old and die in 60, 70, 80, 90 years. They kept living. So knowledge was cumulative. They could have easily uh, had spaceships prior to Noah's uh, flood. I don't know that they did, but it could easily have happened. <clears throat> now, he didn't build a big steel ship. He did build a wooden ship, so you know I don't. That might indicate that there wasn't as much as could have been. Maybe they were smart enough to do, not to do what we've done. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, he said, Noah shall comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the eternal has cursed. Uh, 
uh, I started that soliloquy by wondering how he knew Noah as a baby would have any impact or any influence in any way. You know, people back then named their babies after uh, the various characteristics they thought they would have, and that's what he called Noah. The word Noah simply means rest or comfort. Uh, well, he didn't. Well, he brought rest to the population of the earth for the most part. Uh, death is rest. <laughs> they, they didn't have any more trouble. Uh, but it also brought rest to uh, he and his family from the violence that was going on. And uh, there is a statement a little later where some of the curse that was on the earth was lifted. So maybe things that God talked about with uh, Enoch or that were passed along, who knows uh, what rumors had gone around or information uh, that was true uh, ahead of time. Enoch was a prophet, so he may have uh, confided some things to some people somehow, and they knew that a change was coming of some sort. Uh, God may have let Enoch know uh, some of the things that he was going to do. He certainly let him know about Christ's return in the with thousands, tens of thousands of his saints. So if he projected that far ahead, I'm just speculating here, maybe he told Enoch some other things uh, that Enoch was able to pass along, so there's a certain amount of knowledge maybe, or an anticipation of a change. I doubt if people expected the kind of change that did occur. Now you and I know clearly, do we not, what is about to happen to the world? Uh, but how much does the world know? They're basically walking in darkness and have no clue about how far political changes and military changes are going to go. But through the scriptures, we know. Some of them have a vague idea. They don't really understand, but they see a lot of horrible things in the book of Revelation. So they have some clue that there's trouble ahead if they pay any attention to the Bible at all. But there aren't too many that do that. <clears throat> anyway, Lamech had some idea in mind about Noah and how he would help bring change about that was of a good nature. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah 595 years and begat sons and daughters. So he lived a total of 777 years and he died. So... At this point, in verse 32, Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, sometime after he was 500, uh, those children were born to him. So then we really get into the story in chapter 6. It came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. So it had started out like the penny with Noah... I mean, with uh, Adam and Eve, and by the time Noah was there and 500 years old, uh, the multiplication had begun, uh, so that there were probably a lot of people. And daughters were born to them, and the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair or beautiful, and they took them wives of all which they chose.' 
There's been a lot of speculation, a lot of consternation about this particular passage, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because we're here to examine Noah for the most part and his character and how God used him. Uh, but something was happening here. Some people think that uh, demons uh, married with women uh, on the earth and created giants uh, in that form and fashion. And yet Christ clearly told us in Mark twelve twenty five and Luke 20, verse 36, uh, let's see, Matthew twenty two thirty. I guess, is the one I wanted to use for that quote, that uh, the angels in heaven don't marry, are not given in marriage. And, of course, Paul explained that kind begets kind, and there is physical and there is spirit, and they don't mix. So... Uh, spirit cannot beget children of flesh. I think that's very clear from those scriptures. So whatever happened here is not clear. Uh, some thoughts that you might consider, where it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Uh, sons of God, does that mean something in particular beyond just men? Sons of God could include angels. Their angels are called sons of God in several scriptures. I won't go to all of them. Or we are called as converted people the sons of God in a closer sense than the rest of the world. And then you just have human beings who are, by creation, the sons of God. So I don't think you should read into it that these were fallen angels. Another theory Dr. Hay advanced was that Cain and Abel not only were twins, but that uh, they carried the races from maybe God had planted the seeds in uh, Eve's womb so that all the three races would come from their children. And uh, the way she placed it, or the way she said it in chapter 4, verse 1, she bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man, and from may not actually should be in there. I have begotten a man, the Lord. It was the first child ever born, and perhaps she looked upon that child as a god, or looked upon him far more in that respect than normally would be the case. You know, there are people today who will put their children ahead of God. Happens all the time. God says we have to leave father, mother, brother, sister, children, homes, lands, and so on to serve him. Uh, in other words, we're to put him above everything. But I've seen many, many people who if they had to make a choice between God and their children, they'll put their children first. And uh, they may recognize to one degree or another, their children aren't perfect. And they might tell you their children's problems, but don't you dare do so. Uh, because that brings out the fighting in a mama. Uh, that's just the way it is with a lot of people. Now, other people are more realistic and realize my kids aren't perfect either, but there are a lot of people that almost put their children on a God plane. So it wouldn't be surprising to me if the first child born, mama said, oh, that one's from the Lord. Maybe it kind of is the Lord, you know. 
if you just say she called it the Lord, that, that sounds, no, that couldn't happen. But consider the circumstance and how people are, and I wouldn't be surprised that that might not be the case. Now, he went on to say that he thought Cain was black, and I don't know that that is uh, necessarily so. And considering the political correctness today, uh, that wouldn't be a popular thing to promote. Uh, so, I don't know. But it says because the, the, the daughters of men were fair. Well, does that mean that they were light-colored and Cain was dark-colored and he liked them because they were white? Sounds racist, I know. Uh, and I don't know that that's the case. This is very ambiguous and unclear here as to exactly what he's talking about. A thought that I had, and I think I've mentioned before, is the part where it says not only were they beautiful, the daughters of men, uh, but they took wives of all which they chose. Uh, it goes on to talk about how there were giants in the earth in those days. Uh, there were people at least 13, 14 feet tall. They found skeletons of those. And even uh, uh, Goliath, I think, was about nine and a half feet tall. So, or no, that was, that was Og, I believe, that was nine and a half feet. Anyway, uh, the stories are in the Bible as well as in skeletons that have been found of people nine to fourteen feet tall, even maybe seventeen. So there were giants then, too. They were later cleared off and, and died out. But there was a great deal of violence in the earth, as we'll see in the context here. And did those people who were giant and strong and powerful and more powerful warriors simply take whatever woman they wanted uh, by violence? It didn't matter whether she was willing or the parents were willing or anything else. I want that one. I'm 13 feet tall and you're 6 feet tall. I'm having her. You know, was it that kind of a deal? That too, uh, to some degree, of course, is speculation. But anyway, whatever was going on was not something God approved of. The Eternal said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred twenty years. So part of the problem, perhaps, was that God had granted mankind a very long physical life of nearly a thousand years. And uh, you think people get perverted in 50, 60, 70 years, let them live seven, eight, nine hundred and see how bad they get. Uh, he, he, I think he realized that's just too long for people to live as humans. Sometimes I think 70, 80 years is almost too long. Uh, you know, there are days like that. So he said then he was going to cut it to 120, and uh, he didn't immediately. Uh, Noah lived a long time after the flood, about 350 years, and others lived uh, quite lengthy lives as well, not as long as before, but even Abraham lived 175. So he, he slowly cut it down, and then there's a place also where he said 120 is too long, I'm cutting it to about 70 uh, which is about where we've been ever since. Anyway, uh, God had some pretty difficult emotions he was dealing with in 
dealing with man. Then it goes on to say there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Well, you do have a certain advantage if you're a giant, as just as a human being, as I said before, uh, when it comes to warfare, here's a guy with a sword and his arm's about this long, and his sword's about the same length, and then you have a guy who's 12, 13 feet long, and his arms are longer than that table, or two of them, and, uh, and he can hold up a sword that's probably that long as well. And you try to poke him, and he's got feet of difference. So uh, they would dominate, obviously. No wonder they became mighty men and men of renown. I just don't buy this idea that it was spirit beings that were involved with physical women. It, it doesn't appear that uh, angels are ev- even have sexuality, period. They don't, aren't, don't marry, aren't given and married, don't have children. Uh, but the point is, really, in verse 5, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So selfishness, greed, envy, violence that comes from that was the order of the day. That was the society. Uh, we'll see scriptures that, before we're done that predict that we would have the same thing here in the end time. And you, you don't look at the news anymore uh, without seeing violence somewhere, it seems. Violence and war. Anyway, verse 6, It repented the Eternal that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. I'm sure it grieved him when Satan and the demons rebelled against him and made war against him. And that was the primary reason, I'm sure, why he created mankind physical He wanted to reproduce himself, but he wanted to make us physical so that we could be destroyed if we went the way of Satan. Because he didn't want more Satans and more demons and that kind of people alive and continuing to live in the universe. He wanted to resolve those problems, and yet... He was so, his character is so loving and so kind that he wanted to share the beauty of the universe that he and his son and the angels enjoyed, but he wanted it to be under certain circumstances. He didn't want a continuation of what Satan and the demons had produced. And yet as he looked down during these days, they had gone Satan's way, and human nature was terrible, and... Evil was the constant thought. That's what society had digressed to or or devolved to. There wasn't evolution, there was devolution. I said devil, didn't I? Not devolution. Uh, I said that. That's probably a new word nobody's ever used. Ah, They probably have somewhere. But it certainly was of the devil. So God was very chagrined at what had occurred. And he said, made a decision, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth. 
both man and beast and the creeping things and the fowls of the air, for it repents me that I have made them. God was in the depths of emotional discouragement over what had occurred thus far. God is a God of emotion. Now, he is a God of peace and of joy and of happiness, and those are the characteristics that he has. And yet, on the other hand, he can know sorrow, he can know suffering, but he's going to fix all this. He promises us that once we're the bride of Christ, we will have no more tears, no more sorrow, and no more suffering. In other words, even though he was going through sorrow and suffering emotionally for what had occurred, he plans to fix it so that that goes away. But it will not go away (coughs) completely until his whole plan and purpose has been accomplished. Until we either are part of a joyful, righteous society or we are dead and gone forevermore. And then and only then can no sorrow and no uh, trouble uh, be found. That's what it takes. Now with God, a day is as a thousand years, so the way time goes by with him, this is kind of a bad week, (laughs) bad 7,000 years. Uh, For us, it goes on longer because we're tied to the clock in a way that God is not. Anyway, God was obviously pretty upset if he'd come to the point, he says, I'm just going to wipe it out. I've had it with this. The Eternal said, I will destroy them. But verse 8, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Eternal. The only one. The only one. Now, he had removed Enoch, and maybe Enoch was doing something else. Uh, And maybe he even possibly could have sent letters back whereby he let people know certain things. But Noah was the only one that was left within society, with Enoch gone, who found grace or favor in the eyes of God. He's kind of in the position I described yesterday with Enoch, the only one around that was righteous, and now Enoch was gone, and Noah was the only one obeying God. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and upright in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Even as Enoch had walked with God, Noah walked with God. How hard is it? We talked about that some yesterday, when nobody around you is obedient to God, and in fact they're against God, and they're doing everything they want to do their way. How hard it would, would it be to serve and obey God under those circumstances? And Noah had knowledge of the truth. Remember we talked about uh, sin and how Cain couldn't have slain his brother uh, unless there was a rule against murder. And we know that the Sabbath rule had been established. We'll see here as we go through this context that Noah was very aware of the clean and unclean meats laws because they came two by two except for the clean ones and they came seven by seven. So the laws of God had been 
established by God with Adam and Eve and passed down to some degree. Not followed, but passed down, perhaps. Uh, but Noah was following the ways of God in spite of everyone around him. Now, there's a strength of character that we need to look back to. I mean, we're, we're going through this that we might learn. Here is a strength of Noah that is, in a sense, beyond our comprehension. We have, we struggle, and we know people who are trying to follow God's ways, and they're being taught to us, and we have the Bible to remind us. But here was a man who had nothing going God's way but himself. What a, what a power of will and strength and understanding uh, he must have had. There's a tremendous example we can look to. And we're in the same type of society today that he was in, where there's nothing godly going on, or very little except in those few whom God has called out. So he had these three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God and was filled with violence. So he reiterates again how bad it was. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. says it again. So when he repeats it this much, uh, it must have been pretty bad. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. He had corrupted God's way, and each had corrupted his own way away from God. It had to be corruption from God or his way, because that's what corruption is, is departing from God and following after Satan and human nature. God said to Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me. I've decided I'm going to kill mankind. Now that would have been very difficult and shocking news, I'm sure, to Noah. Uh, God said some shocking things to Abraham and Sarah and various ones, but if Christ had come down, and this was Christ speaking, uh, said, Noah, I've decided I'm just going to kill them all. I've had it. Well, what if Christ came, showed up somewhere here? I've just decided to kill all mankind, except Noah. <laughs> that would include us, wouldn't it? It's come before me, the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So he was going to do great damage to the earth as well at the same time. Now, is this anything, in a sense, that wasn't going to happen anyway? Violence had corrupted mankind to the point where ultimately mankind probably would have killed himself off. Just like today. He says he will intervene, otherwise there would be no flesh saved alive. So here at the end, most flesh is also going to be destroyed, but God is going to intervene before it completely happens. 
Here, he intervened before it happened and took care of the problem himself. So he tells him, Make an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shall you make in it, or nests, it says in the Hebrew, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Uh, whether that is sap from trees or whether it's uh, tar uh, out of a tar pit, I do not know, but it was something that obviously would be waterproof that uh, would keep the wood from swelling up and, and the ark from sinking and water from penetrating between the, the boards. And this is the fashion you'll make it of. It was roughly, depending on which cube you use, the shortest would have been about 450 feet long uh, and about uh, 75 feet wide, and the height 45 feet, three stories. That's a pretty good-sized boat, even yet. Uh, some of the barges they used to take across uh, the sea from Seattle to Anchorage, I know, are about four or 500 feet long. Uh, they transport a lot of stuff on one of those. And then it was to have a window and uh, first, second, and third stories. Uh, and behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is in the earth shall die. But with you will I establish my covenant. God made lots of covenants over the... Covenant is simply agreement. A, a contract. He made agreements with people here and there throughout. We speak of the first and the second covenant uh, as certainly bigger covenants involving more people. But God made agreements with people. Uh, you made an agreement with God. God made a covenant with you. He made a covenant with someone yesterday. I was part of it. Where you say, I will not live my way anymore. I will not follow the dictates of my human nature and my flesh. And I will devote my time, my life to you, Father in heaven. And I will be your slave, your bond slave. I will do everything you say because you're my master. I belong to you. Your son is redeeming me, redeeming my life from death and offering me life eternal and therefore I will use the rest of my physical life to serve you with my whole heart, mind, body and soul. That's the covenant you made before you were put under the water and symbolically your old self and your life was washed away. Baptism symbolizes death of the old man. Never more to arise. But we are to conform every thought, every activity to God and to Christ. We are such a slave that it includes absolute and total mind control. But it isn't him controlling our mind. It is us controlling our mind to him. 
Now, God does not control your mind. He gives you free moral agency. But when you're baptized, you're making a commitment that is unbreakable. And if you break it, you will go into the lake of fire. Because God will not have rebels in his kingdom. It's just not going to happen. He's had enough of that. He'd had enough of it clear back in Noah's day. Now, we can tend to forget how serious a covenant we made. We can go back and read Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, and say, here's the blessings and cursings chapter. Here are the terms of the covenant God made with Israel. And he says if they'd obey him, he would bless them. And if they disobeyed him, they would be cursed and go back into captivity. They would say, oh, those Israelites, boy, they never could keep an agreement. How long did you keep the commitment that I just described before God? How long before you sinned in thought or in action? I dare say the two that were baptized yesterday have had some kind of a selfish or wrong thought since then. Wouldn't be a bit surprised. In fact, I'd be very surprised if it hadn't happened. You know, how long can a human being live without giving in to some human emotion or thought or word that shouldn't have been thought or said? I have not. I know I've not made it through 24 hours without having some kind of a wrong emotion or thought in my whole lifetime. I'm, I'm pretty sure I haven't made it 24 hours. As, as I sit here and recall, I've had to repent every day and ask for God's forgiveness every day. Now, there may have been some days when I got sidetracked and didn't do that, but I needed to. And the very fact that I didn't devote that time to Him that day was one of those sins. It's easy to condemn the ancient Israelites and say, boy, they didn't keep that very long. If, that, if I'd have just come through the Red Sea, I wouldn't have muttered and murmured. <laughs> Don't kid yourself. How long does it take to be thirsty or hungry before you begin to murmur and complain? Doesn't take very long. Mom, I'm hungry. That's all they were doing. Dad, I'm hungry. Moses, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty. You brought me out here to die. I feel like I'm about to die of thirst. Doesn't take but a few hours. So God made a covenant here with Noah, just as he's made a covenant with you and me. Ours is a very personal commitment and covenant that we made before we were baptized. Luke 9.62 says, once you put your hand to the plow, you can't turn back. You have to move forward, as Paul said. Don't shrink back, but move forward to the saving of the soul. Now, he made a deal here with Noah. This was a, this was a big deal in Noah's life. What if God came to you and said, I want you to build a boat? Now, you're the man. I want a boat 450 feet long. Some of you would still like an 18-foot fishing boat. Uh, this, this was a big deal here. I'm going to establish a covenant with you. and You shall come into this boat you're going to build, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you, 
And he says, I'm going to send two of every furred, feathered, skinned, creeping thing, everything that draws breath, I'm going to send two of them to you, and I'm going to send you seven pairs of the clean. And everything else is going to die. Well, the fish survive because they don't draw the breath of air. And they could survive in the water. But everything that breathes air was going to die there except what was on this boat. The Eternal said to Noah, Come you and all your house into the ark, for you, for you have I seen righteous before me in this generation. God looked down on mankind and says, The only one I see that's righteous is this Noah. I'm going to save him, and I'll save his family along with him. Now, he was 500 years old when this started. And then he talks about the clean beasts and so on. I won't go through all the detail on this, how they had come uh, to him. Verse 4, For yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights. So he gave him a week's warning that he had to get the boat loaded. <laughs> all these animals, and he even tells him somewhere, and all the food that they need. So a lot of hay and grain and whatever some things eat uh, had to be brought onto that ark. Noah did according to all that the Eternal commanded him, and he was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. So he went in, his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, just eight people, into the ark because of the waters of the flood. And the clean beasts and those that aren't clean and everything went two by two and seven by seven. And in a week's time then, here came the floods, verse 10. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. I don't know how cataclysmic this was, but the earth's crust must have had to have buckled to let water that was within this orb out, and also the heavy rains from above. And if uh, it was opened up down below and all that liquid began to pour, uh, would that a lot of it vaporized and come back down even as rain? So... uh, it was a pretty violent storm, and it changed the earth a great deal. It helped remove some of the curse, at least, that God had put on it with Adam and Eve. So there was a great deal of change, probably in the surface of the earth at this time. It was all still one continent. It wasn't divided physically into the continents until the days of Peleg, uh, several generations after the flood. Uh, so... Uh, were there cracks and fissures and earthquakes where the, the deeps were opened? You go around today and you don't see great big holes around that water just would come up out of. Maybe a few little ones in Yellowstone, you know, but, but not great big holes. So that means that there had to be some amount of cataclysm for it to open up with huge springs coming out of the earth. Enough to cover the mountains. Now how high were the mountains back then? I don't know. Maybe the earth was gentler then. And maybe when the depths of the earth were broken up, 
and heaved up, and these, this water came out, it could have raised the mountains a lot over what they were. So maybe the depth of the water on the earth, uh, well, I guess if it thrust up then, they would have gone that high and it still had to cover it. So I don't know how much change there was. We're just kind of speculating a little here. But obviously there was quite a bit of change. And the water was deep enough that everybody drowned. Now, he'd worked on that boat for about a hundred years. That was a big project. How long do your projects last? What do you do, knit? Knit a sweater? Doesn't take too long. Maybe you've got a hobby that fishing or hunting or something that lasts a lifetime, but uh, he had a job to do that was a hundred-year job to build a huge boat. Now, consider the conditions, because this is part of the character of the man. He had to have been a very, very patient individual. Patience is one of the remarkable qualities of God. God had shown a lot of patience, it says in, in Peter, even as the ark was being prepared. He had made a decision, I'm going to wipe them out. And then he was patient himself for a hundred years, But Noah was also patient. He had to do this thing one board at a time, one board at a time. Probably had to cut the trees, probably had to to make the lumber. Then he had to fit it all together and fasten it together. And it was all very, very time-consuming for a boat that size. And everybody around said, Man, you're crazy. You are the craziest, looniest, most ridiculous person on the face of the earth. We're having a good time out here. We're partying and marrying whomsoever we may choose, and we're killing whoever we want to. We're having a blast. And you're building a boat. A big boat. What are you going to do with that boat? Well, God's going to send a flood. He said, What? God's going to send a flood. How many times did he say that? How many times did he say, you're nuts? Or did they say, you're nuts? Yeah, God talks to you. You're loony. You hear voices. He was a judge, the most insane individual on the face of the earth. He put up with that for a hundred years. That's a long time to be called crazy. A lot of people would say, man, this is too much for me. I've had it. I I can't do this. How often do you give up and how easily do you give up on certain things that you know need to be done? Or how often do you procrastinate and put them off if they're unpleasant to you? A day, a week, a month, years. I'm going to get to that someday. Been 40 years now. Still going to get to it. My grandmother was going to clean up those sheds she had behind the house where she she kept every magazine that had ever been published, I think. And she was going to get those cleaned up. Every once in a while, my cousin would clean one out and burn everything. But she never got around to it. And we didn't tell her we did that either. But it irritated us. No, he stayed at it methodically, patiently, day after day after day. 
Now, how, how difficult has it been for you at times to have your friends and relatives turn their backs on you and say you're crazy just for joining Worldwide Church of God 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? They thought you were nuts. Well, you're a good Methodist. You're a good Presbyterian. You're Catholic. You can't join that church. You're crazy. All our friends and relatives turned against us. Now, we weathered it, didn't we? We, we handled it. We did. A lot didn't. There were some who turned back, who brushed up against the truth and couldn't take the pressure and didn't, go, didn't follow through for reason of family or children or whatever. Now, we've gone another step further than that. You who are here, now you've followed some crazy, really, truly insane guy out into the desert of northern Arizona saying that Zion National Park is a place of God. You think he's crazy? You're even crazier for doing what he's saying or preaching. You know what? I probably have the lowest reputation of any minister of the Church of God worldwide, all splinters combined. That's probably the case. There might be some dude out there that they think worse of, but uh, I went completely bonkers when I started coming out here and saying the Middle East isn't the place. Uh, that, that's plumb crazy. And there are people that live right here on this property who still think that's plumb crazy. Uh, one or two of them believe that, yeah, Zion is the place. But every scripture says Zion and Jerusalem are together. They can, they can accept that Zion might be the place here, but not Jerusalem. Everybody knows that. Jerusalem's the right one. Everybody knows that. You're crazy. That's okay. I'm going to try to be like Noah and be patient with being called crazy and insane because you know what? I know I'm right. And it's not me that's right. It's these scriptures that are right. They're the ones that tell you where we are. They're the ones that tell you the doctrines we keep. So if you call me crazy, I'm just teaching you what the Bible says. You know who you're calling crazy? The one who authored the Bible. Don't know it, don't realize it. Because people will say, well, no, he's perverting what God wrote in the Bible. But for a few people, God has opened their mind to understand and to see that, yeah, that really is in there. That's what that says. So you get put in the same loony bin that I'm in. <laughs> so we're, we're brothers and sister, sisters together in the loony bin. It's okay. It's okay. Noah went through it. We're just going through it for a few years. I've been at it now for about 20 uh, since I began to really understand what's going on. And some of you have been at it almost that long uh, since you began to understand as well. So he went through it for a hundred years, and it was worse by far uh, what he went through because it was everybody 
and it was incessant. And he had something out there that he was building that attested to how crazy he was. But he stuck with it. So he showed a great strength of character there. And the covenant he made with God, he kept. He kept it. Were there days and a hundred years of hard work where Noah sat down, took a break and said, I don't know whether I can do this or not. That's an awful big boat and I'm just a little guy here. I'm not one of those giants and men of renown. <laughs> I'm, I'm just trying to build this thing. I'm sure there were days that he was somewhat discouraged and frustrated and probably prayed to God, give me the strength to do what you told me to do. This is a long project, even for a guy that lives a long time. Why is Noah listed among the faithful? Well, A, he was already walking with God and obeying God in spite of the fact that no one else was. And then when God made a covenant with him to build a boat, that put him way beyond sanity with the rest of the world. He showed an awful lot of strength of character, of perseverance, of willingness, of servitude, of being a slave to the project that God gave him, even as you and I are slaves of the project that God has given us. Anyway, uh, where was I here? Somewhere. Uh, the waters prevailed 150 days, verse 24 of 7. In chapter 8, God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters began to go away. Now imagine also, you know, we, we're told we'll have trials and tra- tests and difficulties in life. Now he'd spent a hundred years building this thing. Then he had to take his wife and his sons and their wives, eight people, to live on this pig. You know how that thing smelled after a bit? Seven of fourteen of these and four of those of everything there is, and they all ate stuff and turned stuff into other stuff. And that other stuff accumulated in their nests or pens that they lived in on that enclosed boat that only had one window and the door sealed. I don't know whether it had some modern vents on top or not, but I doubt the air conditioning system was too good. That was one smelly place to be. And I imagine all eight of them bailed manure pretty much nonstop day after day for 150 days of the waters prevailing and then they began to assuage and they still couldn't get away from the smell and had to wait until the earth was dry again before they could get out of that smelly place. You have trouble if there's a little paper on the floor in the gas station restroom and maybe somebody didn't put the lid down. 
or did put it down and then messed it up. That's about all you can handle. Try living here for over half a year. (laughs) There was a trial. There was a test. You'd think they'd have built a little uh, deck on top and a place to get out where they could get out. Ah, fresh air. No, that was only a 45 feet depth, that boat. And with that much water and that kind of waves, it was probably going under the waves as it floated along. So not only did you have to deal with smell, but you also had to deal with seasickness perhaps for a certain amount of time. And that smell didn't help that issue either. So it's easy to read through here and say, oh, okay, well, they, they, they made themselves a boat and then they went on a cruise. This is not a cruise you would have paid money to go on. Well, you might have if you thought the, you're going to drown, but it wouldn't have been a pleasure cruise. Well, he went through an awful lot here, and so did his family. But they lived. Now, we're going to go through a lot here at this end time. But you know what? We're going to live. Most of mankind's going to die. But God has said, if we will keep our covenant with him and please him, he will protect us and we will live. We may go through some hard times, through some manure, <coughs> as did they. And there will be danger and there will be fear. And that's why he says, don't fear. Follow me, do what I say, and I will protect you. Don't fear the new world order. Don't fear the armies. I will take care of you. Just do what I say. And if I say, leave your homes in the midst of Babylon and leave your families and move out into a wilderness that I'm going to protect and put a wall of fire around and provide it with food and drink... Do it. Me? I have to give up my house? I have to give up my job, my grandchildren, my children? And go out and live at the desert southwest? Abram faced kind of the same thing, didn't he? I want you to go somewhere. I ain't telling you where it is. You've got to go find it. Say toodaloo to your family and on your way, Abram. Yes, sir. Show me where I'm going. I'm headed out. I just packed and I'm gone. We'll get to him a little later. But didn't Noah do pretty much the same thing? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy the earth. I want you to build a boat and get on it and you'll be saved. You sure? <laughs> you know? <laughs> is, that, is that the way this is really going to work out? I sure hope so. what about you and me we're facing the same covenants we're facing the same agreements they were spelled out in the scripture and the scripture spells out to us instead of God having to tell us directly we got the book of Revelation and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel and the minor prophets we got all these things to tell us what's coming and tell us what we need to do and we're reluctant and we have trouble doing it. And our lives depend on it. And our opportunity at being in the kingdom of God as a bride of Christ depends on it. 
Everything he says, I'm not talking about just moving here. I'm talking about everything God says to do. We're not to let any of these words fall to the ground. We are to study them carefully, be reminded of them, and do exactly what God said. Now, if Noah had dropped the ball on anything in the preparations that God gave him to do, he'd have been in trouble. Well, I don't think we need pitch. It's wood. It'll float. I, th- I think we'll be all right. That's a lot of work putting that pitch on. I get my hands sticky. Uh, you know. Uh, no, you better do it the way God says do it. Whatever it is. And he did. Took him a long time, but he got the job done. So anyway, uh, it goes through about how it came to rest at Ararat, and he sent out the the dove and so on, and, and it finally realized it was dry, and then they came out of there. God told him, okay, it's time to time to get off the boat now, verse 16 of chapter 8. And all these animals were off as well. I don't know, maybe they had them in locked cages and they only opened so many at a time, otherwise they'd have gotten run over, because I imagine those animals had had it too, and the birds and everything that were there. Anyway, verse 18, Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, and all these animals and birds came out. What did Noah do? He built an altar, verse 20, to the eternal, and took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. These, hey, the burnt offerings weren't instituted till Moses. Were they? Why did Abel do it? Why did Noah do it? Oh yeah, God had explained all this a long time ago. And the eternal smelled a sweet savor. This cooking, you, you like the smell of cooking meat, don't you? I want to be out here when they start barbecuing this afternoon. Man, I love to smell that meat burn. Not burn, but cook. Oh, that smells good. So God smelled Noah doing a barbecue down there, and it was a sweet savor to his nose. And the Eternal said in his heart, when he saw eight people come out of that boat, he had thought, considered, killing everybody. And he says, well, you know, Noah obeys me. I'm, I'm going to save Noah, and, and I'll, I'll preserve mankind through his sons and their wives. I'll do that. And as soon as Noah came out of there, these animals that he had been taking care of for these months and months, feeding them, taking care of them, talking to them, and the birds chirping back and whatever, He took some of them who had made it through all that and killed them on the spot because of his commitment to God. That might have been hard to do, you know. Here we've lived with these birds, these animals, all this time. We gave them names. (laughs) Have you fed Archibald today yet, honey? They were intimately acquainted with all those birds and animals. And as soon as he got off the boat, he took some of them and killed them and burned them on an offering as an offering to God. And God was so pleased at that devotion to him. His devotion to God was stronger than it was to these birds and animals and pets that they had become during that time. 
He worshipped God above all. God said in his heart, he was moved. He says, I'm never going to do that again. I'm just not going to do it. Look at Noah. Noah pleased God. Doesn't say anything about his kids or his wife here. Noah was the leader, obviously. But he did this thing. <clears throat> God said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. That four is a bad translation there. Uh, the Hebrew, in my margin, says though. He says, I'll not curse it any more for man's sake, even though the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. He says, I know human nature hasn't really changed. There have been a lot of people killed who were living by their human nature. I know it is still evil, and I'll still deal with it, but I'm never going to go to the extent that I have gone here because of Noah. Noah moved his heart. Now, is that a reason for us to look to our forefather Noah? I can sit here and have an emotion wash over me even as I say this. It almost makes my eyes water. What if I, carnal, wicked, sinful, selfish as I am, what if I could please God to the point he could say something about me that he said about Noah? What if you could move God's heart and his emotions so that he felt the way he felt right here because of you or me? That would be an incredible thing. We know our frame. We know how sinful, how selfish our nature is. We've come to grips with that, have we not? Deceitful and desperately wicked by nature. So it's hard for us to even imagine God being so pleased with us that his heart was moved to the point he would make such a statement as he made here. Because of that man or that woman, I'm never going to do something ever again. I will never smite any more everything living as I have done. He's going to allow Satan and he's going to allow mankind to destroy most of the people who are living on the earth here in the end. But he is not going to take it down to this number. Even with the seven last plagues, even with Christ coming back and making war and putting down all rebellion on earth, he's going to save at least a hundred million to establish the millennium. That's still a pretty good number of people. That's not eight. <laughs> it's a hundred million. But he knows it's necessary. But he's got a fix for it. He'll bring them up in the second resurrection and say, now... You died, and you died violently, and you died of a bad disease, and you died of starvation, and that wasn't much fun, was it? Want to do things different now? 
Well, see, the hands of those that want to do different now, they'll about all go up. It'll be a different world. Well, God's got it all figured out. And then he made a promise, verse 22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. A day and night kind of ceased for Noah and his family. They were on a dark ark. I doubt if they had modern electric all through it. And not much light, probably. They're sealed. They're fumbling around in there in the dark, taking care of all these animals and trying to get them fed and get themselves fed and uh, keep their nose plugs in. But, but so life as they had known it changed dramatically. But God said, these seasons, you know, we still see the seasons. We saw the moon come up last night. And as I saw it when I got up this morning and went in the house. I could see the little bit of light beginning to come up in the same place the moon came up last night. He says, as long as the earth remains, these conditions are going to continue and the seasons will be there. They're still here thousands of years later. He made that promise when he smelled the offering that Noah sent up. Let's be like Noah. Let's let God say these things about us. You know, he is going to about somebody. I'm not just spouting off the top of my head here. There are going to be some people here in the end time who please God so much that he's going to turn his face to them instead of away from them and begin to bless them in ways that they have not been blessed ever since Adam and Eve. Going to give them the Garden of Eden. Going to give them food, wine and milk without money. There's going to be abundance, and they'll all be under their own vine and fig tree, says in Zechariah 3. On and on it goes in the prophecies of the two witnesses in the end-time remnant who will serve and obey him. And they will do his pleasure. They will build his temple. They will build his city. They will build his spiritual temple, his church. And they will obey him with their whole heart. What did he tell us in Jeremiah? When you turn to me with your whole heart, you will find me. That's what we got to do. Noah made an agreement and a covenant with God. And so did you and I as individuals. And then we began to take it back, didn't we? We've not lived up to our agreement and our commitment to God. Not the way Noah did. He put his heart into it for a hundred years. Did he make mistakes? What time is it? I'm already done. Uh, He pleased God a great deal. But everything in Noah's life did not go perfectly. So there's hope for us that there is someone who lived a certain way and succeeded. And as we go forward, we'll find also that we're going to make mistakes, and we're going to have troubles, and God will see us through them. So we're out of time for today. Let's explore that part of it tomorrow. In Zion.
or if we don't go on with this for the sake of those who will be listening, I might do something different tomorrow. I said that, but I'm not sure what I'll do yet.